Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. Today, Karen concludes her discussion with therapist Selma Bachevitz on attachment and war trauma in children. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, and I am joining you here today for another episode. I want to tell you about our guest today, who is Selma Bachevitz. Selma is a psychotherapist, consultant, educator, and mother. She is going to be speaking with us about the impact of war and trauma and refugee status on attachment and parenting. Selma comes to this discussion, not only with her personal experience as a refugee, but also a wealth of professional experience. For over 10 years, Selma has helped thousands of parents heal from trauma and parent through connection. She has also launched Balkan Mama Therapy, And through that service, her goal is to help heal intergenerational wounds and help parents learn to find healing. She has specialized training in attachment, trauma, parent-child relationships, a certification in infant mental health, just to name a few of her qualifications. In addition to that, she has recently launched a children's book that she will be talking about during the interview. So stay tuned. We will be coming right up with Selma's interview. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. This July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock launches the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. Selma, it is so great to continue this conversation with you. Thank you uh, for being willing to be here again. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so I want to touch on uh, some of the things that we talked about last time uh, for you to elaborate on those things. And one of the things that, that you pointed out that is really not paid attention to adequately is refugee grief. And you are starting to share a bit of about that as we spoke previously. Please tell me what you want listeners to be aware of about that. 
there are so many things, Karen. I, I think I want to bring up three specific things that stand out to me personally. Um, and, and by no means are is this a list that's all inclusive. Um, and I would encourage our, our listeners today to really go and dig in a little bit deeper with, with reading articles. There are many, many articles written about refugee grief and how it actually differentiates from trauma and how we have to look at this complex um, prolonged grief in refugees before we actually start working on their trauma. So in parent-child dyads, if a mom is a refugee, if a mom is a resettled refugee like myself or millions of other women in the United States, it's not just okay to be speaking about her um, her grow, growing up and her experiences, but it is so important to ask her about the losses that she feels have happened between what she experienced and what her babies are experiencing. It's, it's tremendous and it's huge. The first of those griefs would be the idea of what could have been uh, that isn't, right? There's this really big notion in the world that refugees choose to become refugees. <laughs> and um, in, in any refugee's experience, we will tell you that we did not choose this. The difference between me as a refugee and someone who isn't a refugee is literally luck and the politics involved in, in a country. When one becomes a refugee, there's this grief of what could be, um, especially for parents. And I'll focus this conversation on parents because we are speaking on attachment. Yes. Refugees may have lost family members, may have lost their parents, brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, etc. In the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, we have the genocide in Srebrenica, which happened in 1995, where 8,000 men were killed in three days. Entire families were wiped out. So when I see a descendant of someone who was killed in this scenario, most of these women who are parents now were either really young children of mothers who were affected by this war, who now overnight became widows, who became displaced, who became refugees, who witnessed a lot of trauma. Many of these women experienced an incredible amount of sadness and grief because obviously they've lost lost someone, but also the grief of how beautifully I could have raised my child if the war never happened. How beautifully my child would have been surrounded by love and caretaking of, of several members of the family who are now gone and the likelihood of their bodies never being found or still being searched for is this ambiguous grief that no one really understands, right? You're grieving someone you know is gone, but you can't have closure until their remains are found. So it's, it's a tremendously deep, deep, profound grief. That would be the first one I would strongly encourage people to become aware of. The second one is raising your child outside of your culture. Culture is extremely important. 
when refugees come to a different country, it's almost like we're forced and expected to just dive into assimilation and integration. Like if you don't integrate, if you don't assimilate, then you're not being a good refugee. <laughs> You've got to do as the country that hosts you tells you to do. So many people, because of their thankfulness of, of a host country agreeing to accept them, they start losing a part of their culture. They start losing a part of a sense of who they are. And this creates a really deeply profound um, and complex grief where parents, I'll use my parents, for example, they've lost a part of their culture, but now they brought a 12-year-old into the country that's really heavily influenced on individualism. When I went to high school, actually, I'm sorry, I came to the States, I was in seventh grade. And my biggest shock, I will never forget this. I was dressed in, I had like a little pigtail going on and I had these big overalls and I'm like walking into class and I was the sore thumb that stood out because all of these other girls that were in the same class as I, who were the same age as I, looked a lot older than me to the point where my dad asked me, Selma, are you sure this is not a college class? <laughs> I said, dad, this is where they told us we should come. Um, and my poor dad, I, I think he got really terrified because he saw um, just how out of control the classroom was and no one was paying attention to the teacher and he was leaving me here. And mind you, I this was a very impoverished part of Chicago, a very... Um, a very neglected part of Chicago with a lot of a lot of problems because of a lot of the racism and prejudice against minorities. This is where they resettled most refugees. I come from a family who my mother is an attorney. My father is a businessman. <laughs> uh, my family took really great pride in uh, providing education and providing a lot of resources for us prior to the war. And when this culture shock hits, all of this is stripped away from you, right? When you're a refugee, all of a sudden people assume you don't know anything and can, you know, it, it, there's a grief loss, a grief in that as well. And the last one I want to speak about today is this grief that women refugees experience more often than men do. And this grief is infused with culture of patriarchy, where a lot of women are forced to remain in these roles, traditional roles, which no longer serve them in a very individualistic country. Right in a country where individualism and freedoms of, of women are seen as the, the um, proper way versus a woman who comes from a collective culture and in, in her collectivism has individuality as well. <clears throat> so there's a grief and fear for women inside this where there's a lot of confusion and a lot of navigating back and forth of, of what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Uh, where men have it quite differently. Men, I think just like in, in American culture, are just seen as, okay, if you want to do this, go ahead. But women have a deeper grief in this. And they bring this up because mothers, mother's mental health is directly linked to her baby's mental health. And if we do not talk about this, um, in Bosnia, for example, we have a thing called Chetetisnitsa, which is 40 days after a woman gives birth. All she does is stay in bed and, and nurture her baby. 
She does not leave the bed. She has a um, doula and a nurse who come. They're usually family members who take care of her. The mother-in-laws and sister-in-laws and mothers and sisters, whoever, is in the home cooking and cleaning. All she does is stay in bed and uh, walk around in her room maybe with the baby and just really adjust to being a mom. There's no expectation of her from, from, for anything else. In the West, that may be seen as overbearing in quiet homes, in a lot of homes, right? Overbearing of um, oh, your mother-in-law, you don't really want her to hold a baby. Your mom, you don't maybe want your mom to hold your baby. Don't let anybody hold your baby unless you want them to hold your baby. And there's a lot of these expectations that I was not aware, like sleep training. I was not aware that sleep training exists, Karen, until I became a mother. <laughs> Someone introduced yes. me to this um, and said, you want to change your life? Sleep train your infant. And it just screamed against everything that I as a mom believe in. <clears throat> but when you experience this grief, sadness of losing your culture, of losing the support systems, a lot of women suffer greatly in this grief and sadness. So this is why I bring this up because mom's mental health is so important. Wow. Those, the, the things that you are talking about, each of those three points just has so many layers to it. The one that you just talked about with in interjecting sleep training, something that occurred to me was, is that a, could one reason that that's part of Western culture be when you only have two hands on the circle instead of 10, you, and you have to do so much, you know, I've worked with mothers who resorted to sleep training because they were literally falling asleep behind the wheel on the way to work and were terrified, you know, Absolutely. because they were that exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so it just makes me think some of those things that may come out of this pressure or feeling alone in ways to deal with it. Just, just something that occurred to me while you were talking, I see you nodding yes. your head. Yes, it's it's incredible. And in refugee populations, because we are so uh, vulnerable when we come to we, we literally came with with one uh, one bag of clothes to the United States. We had nothing else with us. We were one of those lucky refugees who was sponsored by the Lutheran um, organization who helped us find an apartment and paid for our plane tickets. We paid them back and they helped us rebuild our credit that way or build a credit for my parents that way. But I cannot imagine raising a child in the United States as a single mom or a mom with a partner, having to work and depend on that paycheck to survive. I still remain very privileged in the state that uh, I welcome my babies into the world. Both my mother and my mother-in-law were able to come and be with me. They took care of everything. And I, I, I was very privileged at the point to have had my own practice and to be able to step away and say, okay, I am good. Okay. I'm okay right now. I will do as much as I can, but my baby and my mental health come first. Many moms, however, feel very vulnerable in this state. And we start seeing our culture as something that's broken or bad 
our native culture. Yes. And seeing the Western culture as the right way to do it. As mm-hmm. could, because it's so successful. The women are so independent. And there's beauty in both. Right. And I tell my moms all the time, if we could find like the middle ground, like, you know, <laughs> accept all the collectivism from one end, but also the empowerment and the beauty of the Western culture, I think that would make for a really, really great um empowering motherhood experience, you know. Yes. Yes. Wow. I and and so recognizing all of the grief before and working with that, before you start thinking, I, I want to work on the traumatic events. Um, and as we think of the traumatic events, I know you and I were chatting a bit before we started the podcast about when a person is a refugee, you have trauma before the migration, you have traumatic events during the migration, you have traumatic events after the migration. Each of those pieces has a whole list of things that can be traumatizing. And I wonder what you would have to say about that. I can speak for my personal experience and say that the resettlement trauma, again, when you lose your identity, when you are, when your parents are trying their best to keep you connected to your roots and and your, your, your culture, it can create a lot of grief and a lot of fear. I find that many refugee and immigrant parents are a lot stricter on their children. They have higher expectations of their children than many of the parents who remain back home, right? When we talk about resettlement um, and trauma through resettlement, we are talking about a lot of those losses I, I mentioned earlier. We're also talking about traumas of navigating a whole new culture and a whole new system when you come from a system that's maybe failed, obviously you're you're a refugee now. Yes. And there's a big distrust in all of this. There's a big distrust, there's a big fear of all of this. Most of us focus on the experience of um, war trauma, right? As, as tr- tr- practitioners, we want to know oh, what happened um, during the war believing that that's probably the hardest part of the trauma. And that may be the most impactful trauma in terms of um, what one would consider trauma in the DSM, right? Life or death situation. Yes. There's a lot of humiliation that happens as well as a refugee who um, experienced trauma um, in, in um migrating. Uh, If we look at Syrian refugees, many of them are treated with, I mean, subpar dehumanizing conditions. Um, And this creates a long and deep and lasting trauma response in someone where, you know, I don't think we could talk about attachment and safety and, and, and develop a connection-based parenting there until this type of grief and, and this, this dehumanizing experience is addressed. Um, the resettlement trauma, however, is an ongoing trauma for many, many people because, again, of that, what could have happened had the war not occurred. 
So Selma, when we are seeing these things in the news um, right now, uh, someone has fled Ukraine and they're now doing an interview with them as they're in a new country, the US or elsewhere. And then there's this idea, maybe, oh, it's a relief. They they got out. And um, what you're saying is some of the hardest things are actually now starting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I see this on the faces of people who are interviewed. It's this almost their words are saying we're glad to be here. And their face is saying something else. Fear. We're fearful. We, we just yes. escaped terror, but yes. we entered into an unknown. I don't know anybody here. I don't yes. know anything here. And how do I know to trust? You know, yes. their bodies are still going through this adrenaline of let's keep you safe from actual physical threat to now having to be on high alert of navigating without knowing the language, without knowing the systems, without, there's a a big loss in all of this where, you know, families and friends that they used to be with every single day are no longer either present in their lives. Maybe some are gone, you know, and adjusting to this is going to take a lot of time. And for some people, it is going to be an easier adjustment than others. But for more people than not, the grief is something we don't talk about. And you just touched on it. You said, we just expect them to be like, oh, yes, relief, we're here. Yes. And yes, thank you so much for the relief that this has provided. But can we also talk about how much I miss my home, how much I miss my family, how much I'm scared of you? I don't know you. Uh, how can we talk about how different noises and different people and different sounds are going to terrify me for the rest of my life because of my experiences in Ukraine or Syria or wherever else war is going on right now? It's incredibly important to become attuned and to provide a space. And I say attuned because many of us live in this very fast paced world, right? Where we're chasing our dreams, we're hustling, we're we're helping, we're we're working. And I know I'm speaking to a group of people who understand how important connection is, how we are social creatures and social beings. So when I say attuned, I really mean like you would to a baby, attuned to a refugee's needs, not physical only, not survival only, but also to their emotional needs because no one, Karen, you you are the first interview I've had um, on a podcast who brought up attachment and mental health with the refugee population. I haven't been able to, see or hear anything outside of research that's done on individuals to see how traumatized or depressed they are. Yes. 
I think this attunement with refugees is going to be really helpful in helping them preserve parts of their culture that they want to preserve, but also giving them the space to be to feel seen and heard and to validate their own story. Because quite often, my I'll use my mom as an example. She will say, you guys were six and three. And then I blinked and you're 36 and 33. I don't know what happened in those 30 years between then and now. And what happened was survival, survival, which really affected my brothers and I ability to feel safe and connected to our parents. Um, we had to grow up a lot faster than most children our age. Mm-hmm. And we had to experience life uh, from, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I called a bank or a credit card pretending I was my mother. So because she couldn't speak English to navigate financial situations and stressors, I, as a 15 year old, had no business knowing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it's incredible to provide attunement. Um, I, I can't imagine the difference my mother and father's experience would have been had they had the support of just someone being present and listening and not offering anything, just acknowledge, give me the space to acknowledge my own pain because I don't have the time in all of this survival, right? And you speak to some of my aunts and uncles who remained in Bosnia, they do not have this experience. They do not have this pain that I speak of that my mother and father carried for most of their lives. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, it is just an honor to have you here and have the opportunity through the podcast to elevate your voice on this. It is such an important voice um, at all times and even more pronounced right now. Uh, Selma, could you share any resources you have um, available? I'm sure there are therapists listening right now who are thinking, Hey, I'm working with someone in this situation. I would love to consult with you or, you know, just anything that you have that you're putting out into the world yourself or that you recommend for others. Absolutely. So anyone who is interested in connecting with me, I would love for you to connect with me through Balkan mama therapy on Instagram or Facebook. I have also um, become a children's book author. (laughs) And again, this was something that came out of my desire to connect. Now, my children are first generation American. And there was a grief in that, Karen. There was a grief in that, a huge grief in that. So I wanted to write a story to explain to them why it is that we live in the United States. Why why is it that we're here? And this story came, uh, I wrote the story two years ago and now with everything happening with Ukraine, I feel like the spotlight on refugees is, is present. And many people don't know how to speak about war, how to speak about refugees. So this children's book is my story the way I imagine telling my back then baby, but now a baby child who can understand. Yes. It's a story for children three to seven, telling them about the experience of refugees and opening up conversations. It is written for parents like me, but it can be used in, I think, any setting. And I would be so honored if people took a time, took the time to look the book up. It's called Adam and the Magic Fenyet. And Fenyet is a lantern, a Bosnian lantern. Um, and it can be found on uh, Amazon as well as on Barnes & Noble for pre-order right now. But um, in a month, 
a little bit more than a month, May 28th is when uh, the book is actually going to come out. So I'm very excited about that. Yes. So we can link that in the show notes and um, really want people to go ahead and look for that and pre-order it. Could you share the title of it one more time for people? Yes. Adam and the Magic Fenyard. Um, and Fenyard is spelled F-E-N-J-E-R. Okay. Well, and I have a feeling, Selma, that although you have it as a children's book, there's going to be tremendous healing as the parents hear this too. Yes. Yes. I've actually had a few of my very close friends and um, I, I, I've developed this launch team who've read the book and the response I'm getting has been just incredible. And again, remember how I said the, in our last conversation, when I learned about attachment, I found my life's calling. Yes. <clears throat> when I learned about attachment within the refugee population, the mother, father, child dyads or triads, I furthered my passion for attachment and really fighting for human rights of all children, especially those those of us who've been neglected in this whole system of um, and see of a lot of pain in the world. But um, I hope that we can put a little bit of a spotlight on this very incredible and beautiful population so that we can help them heal, truly heal, and feel seen and heard and accepted by their communities. Yes, so beautiful. And if what if somebody wants to refer parents? They should, like, you have a website. I know yes, that. Yes, falconmamatherapy.com. Nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they they could look at that. And you mentioned earlier your Instagram handle, yes. which was your, yes. that was your first little baby step of going yes. in this direction. <laughs> it was terrifying because I was so scared of judgment and what other Balkan moms, I thought that most Balkan moms would be like, oh, what is she talking about? We have too much of this anyway. And when the messages started pouring in, and uh, like my heart just, yeah, my heart, this is, this is what I'm meant to do and how this evolves from here on out. I am so excited to learn, but this is bigger than me and my career or, or um, a, a message that I have. This is a whole idea. This is a whole awareness that we are, tr- that I am trying to build on the world's most vulnerable population, which are refugee children, refugee infants, right? And uh, it's so needed. Thank you so much for being here today, Selma. I can't thank thank you. you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.